to Acts chapter 9. And uh, we'll begin actually in the middle of verse 19 and go down through verse 31. Uh, Let me take a moment to say uh, that uh, it has been a pleasure to be with you uh, these four times that I've had an opportunity to be here. I don't know where you sign up to get a monthly vacation, but I like that deal. Man, Bob's got it good. (laughs) No, we teachers, right, we get two full months, right? That's the big joke, right? Uh, And I enjoy it, believe me. Um, But it's it's really been a delight to be with you. You are a, a warm congregation, your love for one another and for Christ is evident, um, and I relish the fact uh, that you are hungry for God's Word and want to live by it, uh, and I thank God for that. This morning, uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 19b, the second half of it, that is, through verse 31, this is right after Saul's conversion. Saul, who would be Paul, the missionary apostle, who would write more books in the New Testament than anyone else, almost half of the books of the New Testament. Uh, This is what took place essentially right after his conversion. Hear now the word of the Lord. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Last time I was with you, we looked at what kind of response is required uh, to the gospel, the necessity of faith and repentance. It's fitting then that today we see what follows after that. If someone has trusted in Christ and has repented of their sins, what comes next? Well, this is just Saul's experience. However, 
Saul's experience is the same as that of believers in general. Christians, God's people, um, will follow the same pattern as what Saul experienced. Not in the same degree, not in the same specifics, but we're going to see today four ways that Saul's experience here reflects the experience of God's people in general. We're going to see that, that, that God's people are being transformed just as Saul was transformed. We're going to see that God's people proclaim Christ. That's the heart of who we have become and it's the heart of our message and lives. We're going to see that God's people like Paul will share in the sufferings of Christ in some way. And gratefully, we will also see that God's people have been sovereignly put by God into a community of love and support. We're not in it on our own. Now, as we're moving in that direction, as we look at this passage, I want you to understand that, that Luke is trying to make a point. And to make that point, he's being selective in the information that he gives us. These few verses that I read to you make it sound like we're hearing about maybe a month or two of Saul's life. If we take this passage, however, and read it alongside Galatians chapter 1 and fit them together, then what we discover is that this passage is actually describing to us parts of the first three years or so of Saul's Christian life. What we read here, and fitting it with Galatians, is that right after he gets converted, he is immediately preaching Christ in Damascus, the very city where he was going to arrest Christians. And however long he spent there, at some point... He left Damascus and went away into Arabia. He tells us that himself in Galatians 1. And evidently he spent between two and three years in Arabia. We have next to no information about that time. Scholars speculate maybe he was on a mission trip there, proclaiming the gospel. That's certainly possible. Paul did a lot of that. However, other scholars have suggested, and I think this is an attractive hypothesis... They've suggested that during those two to three years in Arabia, Paul was in relative seclusion, spending time in the presence of God and in the Scriptures of God to gain a more accurate understanding of what he had studied all his life, but misunderstood. And that during that time, you could almost see it as a substitute for the the two and a half years of seminary training that the other apostles had walking with Christ in this life. Maybe those were his seminary days, his days of instruction and preparation for the gospel ministry. But after being in Arabia for a time, he came back to Damascus. And that's when there was this attempt to kill him. And he fled to Jerusalem. When he went to Jerusalem... He was only there for a couple of weeks, according to Galatians 1. And although this passage says that Barnabas brought him to the apostles, plural, in Galatians 1, Paul clarifies and says that he really only had contact with two, namely Peter and James. 
and that part of his purpose there was to set before them the gospel that he proclaims so that they could see we're on the same page, we're in the same ministry, I'm just focusing on the gospels while you focus on the Jews. But even there in Jerusalem, he was threatened, his life was uh, under potential attack, and he fled then to uh, Tarsus, verse 30 tells us. Tarsus was where Saul was from. He went back home, and he spent a number of years there, again in relative silence, as far as the testimony of Scripture is concerned, until years later and chapters later in the book of Acts, Barnabas is at Antioch with more ministry than he can handle, and he calls on Saul to be an assistant minister to come and help him in that church. And it would be sometime after that that the two of them go out on the first missionary journey. So what we're reading about here is really the first two to three or so years of Saul's Christian life, compacted, condensed in an intentional way by Luke. He's highlighting the fact that Saul was transformed, preached Christ, suffered persecution, and yet received support from his fellow Christians. Let's see how this is true in our lives as well. The people of God are transformed. You see, when he came into Damascus and was converted, surprise, surprise, some people weren't so sure it was true. They doubted it. Did you notice that? Um, It says in verse 21, All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? They knew what Paul was like. Paul, Saul, all interchange those names. It's the same person. They knew what Saul was like. They were not so sure that he was a new man, that he was changed. Paul himself uh, says in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own, own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That's Saul B.C. before Christ got a hold of him. But then he was changed. In his new life, he is with the Christians instead of against them. In his new life, we read that Saul spends several days with the disciples in Damascus. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he tries to join the disciples. He knows that he belongs with God's people now. He's a changed man. He's not opposing them. Instead of persecuting Christ, which is what Jesus told him he was doing when he confronted him on the road to Damascus, you are persecuting me. Instead of doing that, Saul is now preaching Christ. And instead of leading a Jewish conspiracy, he is now the target of a Jewish conspiracy. He's a changed man. And what brought about that radical transformation? Simply this, that he met Jesus. That's it. Verse 27, describing the conversion of 
Saul, um, Barnabas says that on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. In Galatians 1.15, Paul describes it this way, God who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me. You want to know if someone has met Jesus Christ? Look for a transformed life. If their life has not been transformed, they have not met Christ. They may have read about Him. They may claim to believe the things that they've read about Him, but they do not know Christ. Because when you come to know Christ, He transforms you. As I was reflecting on this message again, you know, you're getting leftovers. I've already preached this in Waynesboro. As I was reflecting on this again so that I would be fresh and um, smooth in my presentation, uh, it struck me that everything that shows up in this passage about Saul's early life and therefore the people of God, everything in there, he talks about in his second letter to the Corinthians. It's fascinating. See, like this point, the transformation, it's in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. God's people are being transformed. Just like Saul was transformed. Second point Let's look at the truth that Saul proclaimed because God's people will all proclaim this same truth. It's stated very simply. What did he do? Look at verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus. There's his message. He proclaimed Jesus. What did he proclaim about Jesus? He didn't just go around saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. He proclaimed truth about Jesus. For one thing, verse 22 says that he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Christ is uh, the English translation or transliteration of the Greek word Christos which is the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One. Paul began by preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. He is the one spoken of in the Scripture. Now, when, when Jews especially heard that, they would have been thinking of the Old Testament wherein there are three kinds of people anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. Every time this person is anointed with oil in order to signify that they are set apart to a special task to serve God in a particular way. But the Scriptures also began to speak of one particular anointed one the Messiah. 
who would be called and appointed by God for a very special task indeed, that is to redeem God's people. The Jews had been waiting and waiting for the one who would restore God's people. And now Saul, who once persecuted Jesus, says, I now know the truth. He's the one we've been waiting for. He also taught something else about Jesus. Verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, there's there's probably one primary thrust intended there, and it certainly doesn't mean, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would tell us, that it means that Jesus had a beginning, that He was not eternal, that the Father created Him, and therefore He is His Son. No, that's unbiblical and false. Jesus is eternal, at least the second person of the Trinity is eternal. He wasn't eternally a man. That much is true. But in His eternal state, in His essence, in His nature, He is the Son of God. What does that mean? What did Paul mean when he said Jesus is the Son of God? Well, in Paul's letters, if we can judge from that, when you read through Paul's letters in several passages, he portrays Jesus, referring to Him as the Son of God, he portrays Him in a royal status and role. In other words, Son of God equals King. That's drawing upon Old Testament Davidic traditions, that is, passages about David, and applying them to Jesus as the royal messianic Son of God. Let me give you a couple of examples so you know what I'm talking about. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives some amazing promises to David. He says, David... You're not the end of the line. You're the beginning of the line. Your son after you will reign on the throne. He will be king after you. And in fact, I'm going to make sure that his dynasty is everlasting. His throne will last forever. His kingdom will never end. As you think about that, good Bible scholars that you are, you remember, wait a minute, but even in the southern kingdom, where David's sons reigned on the throne until the southern kingdom came to an end, it did come to an end. And there was a time when there was no Davidic king. Yes, that was so that God might show more clearly that those promises pointed to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, whose throne and kingdom are eternal. In the fullest sense of those words... But in 2 Samuel 7.14, in the context of those promises about David's son being king and having an eternal kingdom, God said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The king is designated as the son of God. In Psalm 2, a very well-known and oft-quoted Messianic psalm. In that psalm, we read, I will tell of the decree, 
The Lord said to me, this is David speaking, The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. David was the son of God because he was chosen by God as the king of Israel. How much more the one who truly fulfilled that passage, who is the eternal son of God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the reigning King. If the story of the Bible can be summarized as God establishing His kingdom by redeeming His people through Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ is the King and the hero of this kingdom. Without Him, there is no kingdom. And God's people proclaim Christ. Now I told you that all of these points are spoken of by Paul in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he says, For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Christians don't go around talking about themselves, they talk about Jesus. He is the light of our life. He is the joy of our heart. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul broadens it and says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God's people have been given a charge to proclaim Christ and to urge others to receive Him as their King, to bow the knee and enter into this glorious kingdom of God. Third point. Yes, Saul was transformed. Yes, he immediately began proclaiming Christ. But not everybody was happy with that. And Saul immediately faced trouble. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise. Anyone who's reading Acts carefully, even for the first time, would take note of the fact that when Ananias was going to Saul to pray that he could regain his sight after he'd been blinded from the light on the Damascus road when Jesus appeared to him. He was told, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now in Saul's case, It was explicit. It was blatant. He's going to suffer a lot for my name, and I'm going to let him know that on the front end. I think if it had been me, I would not have let him know that on the front end for fear he'd run away. Saul's more of a man than I, I suppose. But those were no empty words. In Damascus, he proclaims Christ... And verse 23 says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They were not happy at all with the transformation that, Christ had, that Saul had experienced. They were not happy at all with the illumination of the Scriptures that Saul had received and with the truth he was proclaiming. They wanted him dead. The only way he escaped was because his plot, the, their plot became known and friends 
helped Saul to escape. It says they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Uh, Remember that in those days, um, city walls, cities were walled, and often houses would be built right up next to the city wall. In fact, their home, one wall of their home, would form part of the city wall. As an example, you might think of Rahab the prostitute. The Israelite spies came in, and everybody's after them. How do they escape? She lets them down out of a window in her house, which is built into the wall, and they're free. Such was the escape of Saul also. At night, sneaking away, this is the thanks and appreciation that he gets for his commitment to Christ. So he runs away to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, take two, same thing. He's preaching boldly, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. That's bad news. Those are the folks who stoned Stephen. But he disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Strike two. And it's not as though once he leaves Jerusalem and goes back home to Tarsus that everything's fine and he has an easygoing life. These people who say that if you become a Christian, your life is going to be easy and calm and everything's going to go your way, I don't know where they're getting that from because it's sure not in the Scriptures. It's not there. Over and over again, Scripture shouts at us the opposite. I'm convinced that if you become a Christian, your life's going to get more difficult, not easier. It's going to be harder because we have an enemy, the devil. He doesn't have to bother the non-Christians. He's not worried about them. He's worried about us. Saul faced a lot of trouble. If you read through the book of Acts, you get more and more of it. On his first missionary journey, he goes to a city called Lystra. They stone him until they believe he's dead. On the second missionary journey, he goes to Philippi. He was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. After his third missionary journey, he ends up back in Jerusalem. And there, he is falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. He is arrested and he faces an unjust trial until he finally appeals his case to Caesar so that he can get a fair trial. Then he's on his way to Rome when he's shipwrecked. Have you ever spent two weeks on a ship in a storm so that you didn't know whether it was night or day? Saul experienced that. God put him through it. And then he gets to Rome and that's not the end either. In the book of Acts, we find out he sat there under house arrest for two years at least before he was able to have his trial before Caesar. I mean, it's a life of of suffering and struggle and opposition and persecution. And we dare not think we're going to escape it. Don't think that because we're Christians in America that we are not going to face persecution and opposition. I guarantee you we will. I guarantee you not because I think so, but because the Bible says so. 
Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, you will have trouble in this world. I believe him. I've had some of it, and so have you. God's people are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul goes into a longer discussion of this. I'll just read a few verses. He says, We are afflicted in every way. Let those words sink in. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Praise God, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. What do you think he meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me? God's people will share and do share in the sufferings of Christ. Among those who reject Christ, our message is extremely unpopular. No one wants to hear that they're miserable, evil wretches who deserve to go to hell. And nobody wants to hear that you can't do anything to change that yourself. You are utterly and completely dependent on God to save you. You can't even take the first step. Nobody wants to hear that. If we do not experience a measure of rejection and suffering, then there's probably one of two things true. Either we are not proclaiming Christ, or we are proclaiming a diluted and unbiblical Christ. Because the biblical Christ, the biblical gospel, is an offense to the unbeliever. Only the grace and power of God working by His Word and Spirit can shatter through that hardness of heart. Finally, God's people form a community of love and support. Yeah, Saul was transformed. He started preaching Christ and experienced a lot of opposition for it. They wanted him dead. But not everybody wanted him dead. Both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, Saul had friends. He had a new family. He had the best support group you could ever ask for. Saul, upon his conversion, immediately associated himself with other Christians. We've seen that already. Even though those Christians and others were hesitant to believe that Saul was really changed. He didn't say, well, I'm just going to... You know, I'm not going to go in church. I'm going to make them uncomfortable if I go there. I'm just going to, you know, kind of do my own thing for a while. And, and maybe after several years, they'll, they'll really see and know that I'm one of them. And, and maybe then I'll join the church. No. Saul joined it right away. And in terms of those being uncertain about receiving him, I love this picture of what happened in Jerusalem. He came to Jerusalem 
attempted to join the disciples. Can you imagine some, someone asking to join your church and members of your church saying, I don't know. Uh, is that person really changed enough for us to let him in? They didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. That was his nickname. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem. You see what happened? Paul had an advocate. Someone stood up for Saul. Someone said, listen guys, he's legit. He's really a new man in Christ. He is our brother. And we need to receive him. And they did receive him. Saul gained the trust and the fellowship of the believers who then protect him even from physical harm. In Damascus, verse 25 says, his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall. If it were not for the church, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the saints, Saul would have died in Damascus and that would have been the end of the story. But the body of Christ came alongside him in love and support and enabled him to escape with his life. Then in Jerusalem, it was the body of Christ, first in the person of Barnabas, who stepped up for him, stood up for him, welcomed him when others did not. And then it was later more of the body of Christ When the Hellenists were seeking to kill him, verse 30 says, when the brothers learned this, they brought Saul down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus once again, looking out for Saul's best interests. Beloved, that's what it's like to be one of God's people. We are transformed. Christ is the center of our life and our message which means that we will also face the same kind of opposition and suffering that he did. But we're not alone. Number one, God will never leave us nor forsake us. Number two, he has not even left us alone among our human relationships. We have friends, brothers, sisters, the body of Christ. If it were not for the body of Christ, I don't believe I'd be a Christian today. If it were not for the body of Christ, my children would not know Christ as they know Him today. Because there have been many people in the churches that we've been active in who have come alongside my children. Even to the point that There are occasions when one of my children will say, so-and-so is more of a father to me than you. And that hurts. That's hard to hear, right? But God is using the body of Christ. And that's awesome. John Stott says, true conversion always issues in church membership. It is not only that converts must join the Christian community, but that the Christian community must welcome converts. 
especially those from a different religious, ethnic, or social background. And I might say, especially those whose sin was so obvious. They need to know the love of Christ. Stott continues and he says, There is an urgent need for modern Ananiases and Barnabases who overcome their scruples and hesitations and take the initiative to befriend newcomers. Reflecting on the body of Christ, the fellowship of the saints, Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.4, at the beginning of the letter, he says, God comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. The body of Christ. He closes that letter in chapter 13 saying, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Christianity is not a solo religion. It never was and it never will be. It is a religion of community by God's wise and gracious design. That's what it's like to be God's people. We have a great Savior who transforms us from the inside out. And we've got one another. And we need to stand side by side, arm in arm, praying for one another, encouraging one another, because we are in a fierce battle for our souls and the souls of our children and of our generation. There are many who oppose us because they oppose Christ. But the victory is ours in Him. Let us pray. Dear God, what a Savior, what a God, what a King You are. Such a great salvation You have revealed and accomplished and are applying in our lives today. Oh God, I pray that everyone here would be one of Your people that if they've not yet trusted in Christ, that they would do so. With eyes wide open, knowing that this is a hard life to serve and follow Christ, but knowing that there is no better life, no greater joy. Father, I pray for this congregation that You would nurture it as they nurture one another. Do Your work in Your marvelous ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.